to the Work Life Flow podcast, where we moms take the reins of our lives, explore our options, question the status quo, and demand more from society. Here we come together to tell our stories and share tears of frustration as well as tears of joy. But most importantly, we come together to inspire you to create a work life integration that works for you. So pour yourself your favorite beverage and come hang out with us. Welcome to Work Life Flow episode, How to be more confident in your financial decisions with Jennifer Sable. In today's episode, my guest Jennifer Sable and I are talking about all things investing. We chat about the common misconception that women are not financially savvy and how that has come to be. Jennifer also shares that statistically speaking, women are actually getting better rates of return on investment than men, but we often feel less confident about it. So listen in for some best practices in financial planning and how to have the often dreaded conversations about money with your partner and spouse and how to find that sweet spot of risk and safety for your family. Today, I have a wealth advisor on my show. Her name is Jen Sapel. She's the founder of Utor Wealth LLC. She's a chartered financial consultant, wealth management certified professional, and financial advisor. Talking about herself, she says... She's a recovering type A, mother of two littles under four, caregiver to an extraordinary niece, poet, cyclist, and business owner. Like you, underneath all the labels, she's just a human being trying to both experience the best of what life has to offer and make her corner of the world a little better in doing so. She founded Utor after 15 years with a big company because she was tired of all the extra words in meetings, case studies that didn't resonate with her, and tiptoeing around big egos. Whether dress size or college savings strategy, she doesn't believe in one-size-fits-all boxes. She wants to live in a world where women are money-confident, which allows them to show up a little shinier in all the corners of influence, because we are all worthy of it. So join me today in welcoming Chen Sapel. Hi, Chen. Thanks for coming on today. Hi. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you on the show today. I would like to start out by the transition you made from working at big companies to building your own and who you help. Yeah, wonderful. So the transition from working at the big company to going independent, I'm sure that you've got listeners who can relate. That timing aligned with having my second child. <laughs> so and having my first kiddo, it was manageable having the big corporate gig, certainly not pleasant, <laughs> but manageable. And then once I had number two, it was just, this isn't going to work anymore. So I had always kind of in the back of my mind, wondered and expected that someday I would go branch out on my own and be independent, but becoming a mother of two really kind of forced me to evaluate what do I want my day to look like and my life to look like. And that's what made the transition. And then your second question was who I serve today. <laughs> yeah. So Utor is Latin for enjoy. We primarily serve high earning women to help them be confident with their money. And, you know, I think something that's just kind of a shame in the U S generally speaking, culturally is that women 
lack financial confidence. And it is not because they're not capable or that they don't necessarily want to. There's a variety of reasons for it. But regardless of how much you're earning, I'm just finding in general that women don't have the same amount of confidence that men do when it comes to financial matters. I like that observation. I think it is very true. And even if we go into other areas, oftentimes women are much more skeptical or have a lot of more self-doubt about how to approach things or what, what things they actually can approach and reach. And I think finances is a good topic to talk about. I would not call myself financially illiterate, but also not like an expert by any means. Coming from a family that didn't manage money well, I think I made big strides in, in, in change, but still for me, like financial planning is difficult. What are the main things you help your clients with? Great question. So like the two services we offer are financial planning and investment management. And when it comes to helping somebody with financial planning, that's a lot of advice and analysis for me. That's kind of the deliverable product. But I would say that during my work with somebody, there's elements of education, there's elements of accountability, there's elements of coaching. And I think what's the most powerful thing about working with women, and I, like you, came from a background where we, growing up, didn't talk about money or anytime we talked about money, it was usually a negative conversation. That was definitely a negative connotation of just money in general, fear, and we don't have enough and you know that kind of thing. So through financial planning, I think one of the most powerful things that my clients walk away with is understanding that there is no one right way. And I think women more often than men feel like they're afraid to make a mistake and they're afraid to do something wrong. And what they learn either on their own or through working with somebody like me is there are many ways to be financially successful. There are many ways to build wealth. And it really comes down to the right way for you, which could be a different answer than the right way from your parents or your neighbor or you know anyone else in your life. I like that approach. <laughs> I like it because I think too often, like you said, we try to follow the steps of others. And when I talk to the moms I work with, it is more about building your life around your values. And so our values are not the same as somebody else's values. So it, it, it really comes down to what do I stand for in life and how can I make an impact or how can I build a legacy, right? With the, our businesses, we, we ask those questions, right? And I think in life in general, for our families, we can do the same thing. We can ask, where do I put my money, for example? I've started to invest more in women-led businesses, for example. I've changed my funds from big-name funds to women-owned businesses, for example. And that's one way I'm trying to make an impact. And it's your money. You should be able to. And what I think is interesting, the other service that we offer, I mentioned financial planning, but the other service with investment management the differentiator for us in terms of investment management is that we invest in socially responsible and environmentally conscious and sustainable companies and funds. And there's a lot of conversation in that space right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in that space right now. But just like you just said, it boggles my mind that it's even controversial there's a series going out in the Wall Street Journal right now kind of talking about ESG is short for environmental, social, and governance. And that's kind of the label that's happening in the investment world right now. 
around sustainable investing. And there's a whole series in the Wall Street Journal kind of criticizing that methodology of investing. And it just blows my mind that values aren't a part of every investment decision. Because when we're really honest with ourselves, values are a part of every one of our financial decisions, right? Like we don't just drive any car, right? We drive the car that suits our family needs (laughs) the best. We think about safety features and we think about, you know, size and utility and all of that stuff. We don't just buy any loaf of bread, if we have the money and we have the options, right, we buy the loaf of bread, again, that best suits our needs and our family and things like that. And so same when it comes to investing, if we walked into a shop that was selling t-shirts and we saw that there were, you know, children under six years old, like operating that machinery, some people would walk out of that shop, right? Some people would be like, well, no, no, thanks. I'm not going to buy a t-shirt here while they've got, you know, little kids working heavy machinery that doesn't sit well with me. So I don't know why we wouldn't apply that same logic to our investing. And more and more data is coming out that the perception that you have to give up rate of return in order to invest in your values is not true. Yeah, that might be a a gap that I have, right? That might be my gap to fail to really learn about which funds to invest in properly, right? Well, financial services doesn't make it easy for you. So so I wouldn't say it's a gap for you. I would say the whole industry could do a better job of being more transparent and explaining what exactly you're buying and what the underlying kind of philosophy and methodology is in what you're buying. But those things, you know, transparency and philosophy, they can be buried in prospectuses somewhere, but there's very few of us, especially moms, that have the time to read through 100-page legal documents before we make every investment decision. Yeah, so true. We have one opinion, and I would like to ask a question around it. You say, if you can mom, you can invest. And you just mentioned we are crunched for time. We are crunched for maybe this is not our area of strength, so we push it aside and we keep pushing it aside. So how do you help moms embrace investing? Great question. (laughs) I really, truly believe if you can mom, you can invest because momming is much harder than investing. Investing really comes down to a couple key principles. You know, what's the purpose of the investment? So when do you intend on using it? What is your tolerance for risk or volatility? And, you know, volatility is a fancy financial term, but if we say it in a different way, it's, over a one-year period of time, what's your expectation of that investment? And it could be a very wide potential ranges of return, and that would be a more volatile investment. But the longer you're invested, the kind of expectation as far as what you will get out of that investment, the potential ranges of return should get much more narrow as more time goes on. Let's say you have $1,000 to invest. And actually, let's not even like try to get into the mechanics of investing. I think what's important to know is if you can answer the questions, what do you expect out of this investment? So like if you're going to invest $1,000, you should have some kind of expectation. What should happen to that $1,000 over the course of six months? And what should happen to that $1,000 over the course of five years or over the course of 10 years? And then it really comes down to how conservative or how aggressive do you want to be, right? 
and your expectations, the answer of those questions, what will happen over six months, five years, or 10 years? Over a 10-year period, it could be something as low as like a 5% annual rate of return. Um, It could be as high as a 10% average annual rate of return. So just be able to ask the question, what can I expect from this portfolio? And whether you're using a robo-advisor online, so like a Betterment or Wealthfront or um, Elvest has some of those options, their online programs will answer those questions for you. Or if you work with somebody like me, they should answer those questions for you. So what can you expect out of this investment? What is it going to cost? What are your tax implications? And as long as you can ask those three questions and answer those three questions, then go ahead and invest. I would say the caveat to all of that is investing is a long-term game. So your expectation around investing should be, this is money that you don't plan on using for at least five years, if not 10 years or longer, and that you've got a savings account for your year-to-year unexpected items or emergencies or things like that, um, that, that that's not your investment money. So as long as those two things are happening, you can answer those kind of few questions and you already have like your savings account that should not be invested. That's how everybody invests. And what happens is once you do start to invest, you'll either really, really like it and you'll get more into it and you'll read more about it and you'll want to be more involved or you'll get more comfortable with it and comfortable with the expectations and you'll kind of decide, is this something I want to manage myself or is this something I want to outsource? I think it makes a lot of sense because I think we can answer those questions, right? What is my risk that I'm willing to take? It probably depends on how much money do I have on the side that's actually that I can purely invest, right? Again, if I look at my situation, for example, the career choices that I made did not lend themselves to really great future planning, like pension proofing and everything, because I used to do, I I did a postdoc and it doesn't really do, have a lot of benefits. Now going back, I would not make that choice anymore. I would rather work somewhere else than do a postdoc. And I think a lot of scientists are in this boat at the moment. Anyways, it's a huge realization that it's five years that you will never get back of your, the lifespan that you could have been investing. So I am in this situation, I started investing even when I didn't have an income. When I made the choice to stay home with my kids, I had this conversation with my husband and we decided to open for the US. It's a Roth IRA for me and we were putting money in there. Later down the road, we decided that I would homeschool the kids. So we increased that investment because I was spending more time. I could not really work. And so I was spending more time with the kids and, and it was kind of my financial gain to better prepare for the future. So I'm the type of person, I don't think about it too much. I worry about it sometimes, but I have it automated. And I know you have an opinion about that too. Well, studies show that women are better investors than men because of those things. Men tend to underperform even passive investments or just the market at large because they try to control too many variables. And because women generally have the attitude to investing that you just described, they set it up and they let it do its thing and they don't mess with it too much. That historically has proven to perform better than if you try to monkey with it too often. So congratulations. You're in the camp of better performing investors because you don't mess with it too much. And as far as automations go, I think of financial health 
just kind of like an overall health and well-being way. Right? All healthy things require some effort and some intention and some work and even a little discomfort, right? And I would encourage all women, like lean into discomfort, not fear and recognize, you know, if you're feeling something, recognize when am I being fearful and when am I being uncomfortable and use different kind of methodologies, right? Depending on on where you are. If you're fearful, you know, maybe go for a jog or read a book or do something that helps alleviate fear, but stay in discomfort for longer than <laughs> longer than you want to. That's where growth happens. And so automation, I personally in my household, if somebody could automate the food thing for me, take my money, I would give you my money. I just <laughs> like the food. <laughs> Grocery shopping and prepping and all of that stuff is hard. I automate it as much as I can. Like I'm a HelloFresh subscriber. I don't have to plan meals, that kind of thing with HelloFresh. It's minimal amount of effort on my part. And same for investing. As much as you can automate, the better your life can be. And the first, the most important thing about investing or just in finances in general is that there's a difference between the money that's coming in and what's going out. There should be of the money that's coming in, you should look at it like 100% of the income that comes into this household. What percent of it do I want to use to enjoy today? And what percent of this do I want to put away for my future self? And as like that kind of self-care, I love myself today and I'm going to love myself 10 and 20 and 30 years from now. This percentage of my income I'm going to put away. And as much as you can automate that. So if you have two direct deposits, one that directly deposits into an investment account or even a savings account, something for your future. And then the enjoy the money today gets deposited into the everyday checking account. Do it. You know, you're making the decision once. You don't have to hassle with it. You just check in on it occasionally. Somebody could do that with food. I'm not kidding. I- <laughs> I'd be all over it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel you with that sometimes. Let me just recap. So you said, statistically, women are actually the better investors. Take that in for a moment. I don't think women would have voted like that if you polled them. So we're the better investors. You say automate what you can. And I love how you reframe it as self-care. Self-care for now and enjoying what is and and what I want to enjoy. And I think this is because we don't have a guarantee for how long we live. So I think this is a very important part, actually, to enjoy the moment as well. And then a part, like say, I don't know how many percent for future investment. So I know that some of my listeners are stay-at-home moms. And honestly, even those that either have started or running a business or are working, oftentimes the questions it's not really a question. I think it's, um, they don't quite know how to approach their husband and how to talk about future planning or future proofing the family. Do you have any tips or any advice for my listeners of how to approach their partners? Yeah, probably a bunch. <laughs> I do want to, if I can answer one of your questions, you said you weren't sure about what percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of enjoy today, I do think that's key. I would love for every woman to spend with confidence, right? As much as we, I want women to invest with confidence. I want them to earn with confidence. I want them to spend with confidence. Just every single financial decision that happens, we do it confidently. That's my, like, if I could wave the magic wand 
women having financial confidence, I think would make the world a better place. The how much should be for your future self versus your today self. That again is a values question back to the beginning of our conversation. If you're more in your camp of like, we don't know how long we have to live. So let's enjoy today. Then I would say like 15 to 20% for your future. That's like the minimum amount for your future. Right. And that leaves the bulk of what you, what you are earning to enjoy for today. But you got to, at the very least, be putting 15% away for your future. Um, 20% is a better number. So it's just kind of a guideline. There are people, and I'm not in this camp, I'm more in your camp, but there are people who live on like 30% of their income and invest and save 70% of what comes in because what they value more than enjoying right now is the ability to just walk away from all work as soon as possible. So there, again, no right or wrong answer, but somewhere in that range is the right answer for you. As far as engaging a partner on a conversation with money, What I'll say about all conversations, like money, death, long-term care, you know, kids, like all of the hard conversations in life. If you're a fan of Brene Brown, she's always like the be awkward, brave, and kind. (laughs) Lean into the awkwardness and don't expect it to be one conversation. Expect it to be an ever-evolving conversation. So the first conversation could sound something like, I'd like to be more involved in our financial planning. Can we sit down sometime this month and just review our balance sheet and review what our plans are for the future? That could be a starting point. In an ideal world, again, on the spectrum, couples are talking about their financial lives the same way they're talking about how they want to rear their children, right? Like, how are we going to handle these things coming up for the kids, right? Or how are we going to handle the meal planning for the rest of the week or our vacation next year, right? It's something that happens pretty frequently. The healthiest couples I know sit down sometimes as frequently as weekly to review their finances together. More commonly, it's once a month on kind of like a financial date night make it fun, like go out, get a babysitter, (laughs) drink a glass of wine or champagne if you're me (laughs) and talk about it, like I said, frequently. Two thoughts in that. I would be more in the camp of once, once a month or even quarterly, honestly, for the bigger planning. And then, I don't know, for us, like I said, we are financially stable and I think it's also due to the way of how we were brought up a little bit. We are from Europe, so we have a different spending philosophy. I think then here we were not brought up with credit cards. We used cash. We still use a lot of cash over there. And it's harder to spend cash than to swipe a card. So I think, again, coming back to the values, I think smaller spending amounts we don't really talk about, especially if it aligns with our values. It's something that we want to have in our life, right? So I think I would be more like in the quarterly camp because I don't see myself sitting down with a glass of champagne and having fun <laughs> over finance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Once a week is, you know, the couples that I know who do that both love finances, right? And love spreadsheets and love projections. And so for them sitting down once a week, it's fun and they're kind of comparing notes, right? It's more common to do what you're talking about. And it's even more common, again, just like any other household maintenance requirement, it's also more common that one spouse handles more of 
you know, the day-to-day bill paying and, you know, budgeting and things like that. And the other spouse handles different aspects of finances. Really common in America where it's a man handling the investing and the woman handling the day-to-day budget. That's not always the case, but that's a really common thing. We now know, statistically speaking, it should be the other way around. This is true. (laughs) This is true. Yes, absolutely. We just need women to show up at the table. I think being hesitant and nervous, healthy and perfectly acceptable. But letting that stop you from taking action, that's where it's problematic. Yeah, it's any any aspect of life, right? We have to brave and do things that we are a little uncomfortable with to find that growth, like you said. And we're socialized. There was a bank, um, a woman-owned bank in the, in the UK, Starling Bank, I think. They did a study on publications and how publications talk about money and how it's different for the different genders. Of course, it was only men and women, so there was no nothing more than those two aspects analyzed in this study. But what they found is that messages to women were all about like scrimping and saving and being careful and how not to spend money. It was some ridiculous, like 90% of it was how to get a good deal or how to budget. 70% of the messages to men were how to invest, how to make that next move and that next investment. And even things like luxury purchases, like cars and watches and things like that were framed in a way that's like, it's an investment in your future. Like it's an investment in your next job or status, right? Or something like that. So there's a lot of money baggage that we have that, you know, has come from many, many, many messages. And I would just encourage all of your listeners to kind of like blank slate money. What are the things that roll around in your head about money? And where did they come from? And a lot of them probably weren't yours intentionally, right? You didn't own them and it wasn't yours. It's, you know, for me, it's my mom, a lot of my mom in my head saying, you know, I can't afford, I can't afford, or money doesn't grow on trees. A lot of it from, you know, magazines telling me I need to save money, I need to save money. Uh, When I get rid of all of that and say, well, what's my intention with money? And what do I believe about money? It's a completely different, different ballgame and way of life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When I said, I don't like how much to put away if you're more focused on the now versus the future proofing. And you said that everybody is different. I'm thinking that even it could be that during your life, you shift from one to the other, right? You In the, in the earlier years, you might want to be future proofing more because you have many more years ahead, theoretically, right? And then maybe later it shifts or maybe a little bit of that risk adversity again, you know, depending on where you fall in there. But also I think life, you can change your mind, right? You can change your mind on how much you invest and when it's time to, or when you even have the opportunity, right, to invest a little more and and maybe wait it out. If right now is not the right moment or you don't have enough financial means to put aside. Yeah, you bring up a great point there in that, especially with finance, we tend to get stuck in linear thinking and thinking that like everything's just going to look like a, a straight line or some kind of smooth trajectory. And especially for women, especially because like almost half of us take time off from work, right? To care for someone, kids or parents or, or whoever the case is. So women's earnings rarely are linear. And I think, you know, a curve you know, sometimes some of us earn a lot in our 20s and 30s, 
and then step away from work for a period of time. I'm working with with a lovely woman right now who completely changed careers. So she made very little in her 20s and 30s and then made a huge shift in career. And now she's earning seven figures. And so, yes, it is all subject to change. And like, what is your reality today may not be your reality 10 years from now. And a great point and something that was really helpful for me is that in my corporate gig, as my income really grew exponentially in my first 10 or 12 years, I did not ratchet up my lifestyle. So like the difference, anytime I got a raise or a promotion, the bulk of that raise or promotion, I set aside in savings and investments. And that allowed me the opportunity when, you know, when the second kid came around and I was like, it's time to do my own thing. I had a nest egg that I could draw from where I didn't have to worry about, you know, earning income right out of the gate with a brand new company. So great point. Do you also help your clients because there is this income gap for a lot of us, right? When we, when we stay home, depending on how long, or like you said, sometimes we shift careers and we start something new. So there is a gap and data shows that women earn 75 cents to a dollar a man earns for the same role. Now then there is a gap additionally. Are there any recommendations of how to sort of bridge that gap in financial advising? Is there any way we should invest differently to plan for that? I mean, you, the way you mentioned, I think it might be a good, good way, right? While you were growing in your career, you were putting aside more but is there any any other way we can kind of bridge this gap? Um, that is a great question. I would say in my in my work, that isn't a part of my day to day work as much. Usually, I actually have more clients with stay at home dads than moms, and I think that's just by the nature of you know kind of who I am and my net my network and my belief system and all that fun stuff. But you can invest more aggressively. I think. I think the keys in the situation you just described, the keys are that if you're able to take time off work, it's assuming that somebody else in the household is still earning an income. And so the keys in that is that that's a decision that everybody's happy and comfortable with. It's not just the default decision that daycare is too expensive. And so it makes more sense for you to stay at home. That's kind of what everybody defaults to, or that the woman would be better at staying at home or that she could, you know, she, she may may not earn as much. There's an amazing book that I recommend called Couples That Work by Jennifer Petrogelli. And she frames that whole conversation much broader than just who can earn more money and who stays at home and who doesn't. So I think that having a much broader conversation around that, you know, my husband and I are perfect example. When we got pregnant, we both argued about who would be the stay-at-home parent. Both of us wanted to be the stay-at-home parent. And so while I was pregnant, we were like, well, I don't know, like who has the more earning capacity, who'd be better being a stay-at-home person. And he really like wanted to be the stay-at-home dad. And I was earning more than him at the time. So he's like, you know, it just makes more sense. I was like, no, but I want the option. Anyway, fast forward, we have our first and we're only a couple months in and both of us were like, I can't wait to get back to work. <laughs> so we both learned that neither one of us wanted to be the stay-at-home parent. And so even for me, building a business after the second, I was earning less. We were paying more in daycare than I was earning. It was more, I had the financial ability to do that. And it was more fulfilling for me to do that than it was to be a stay-at-home parent. Turns out I don't have the patience for toddlers. 
Maybe that'll change. Maybe not. Yeah, I feel you. <laughs> it's so hard. Weekends are so hard. Um, and then I would say to anyone who's a stay-at-home parent, there's lots of things you can do. I mean, it's such a great time to kind of plant a garden right? or like prepare an area for planting and gardening. There's a woman here in the Seattle area who has a network called Ready, Pause, Go. And like her whole network is about how do you make the most of time that you're taking for caregiving so that if and when you want to enter back into the workforce, you've gained skills, you've gained knowledge, you've kept up with the latest technology, things like that. So I would say that's probably one of the best investments you can do while you're staying at home is invest in yourself and your capabilities and your interests and your desires and then going back into the workplace from like a purely financial standpoint, make sure the whole family is on the same page in terms of what the trade-offs are. And you could opt for investing a little bit more aggressively and shooting for higher rates of return because you have less to invest. That would be an option, but not an option for everybody. I love that you said investing in development, personal development, professional development. And I think oftentimes we also forget about all the skills, the transferable skills that we actually use in everyday life. Well, I'm an emotional intelligence practitioner. So for me, it is all about the relationships that we really cultivate and we don't lose that, right? Like the higher up you go in your career, usually you need to improve your people skills. And motherhood does that really, really well. Motherhood improves every skill. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, seriously, you can mom, you can do anything. Okay, let's just leave Project it there. Project management, you can mom, you can do anything. <laughs> Project management, negotiation, logistics, like it, it gives you an amazing breadth of skills that, yeah, you, it's hard to learn in the workforce. And you bring up another great point, investing in your network and relationships. I think the most valuable thing I've ever invested in is in other people, right? In other relationships that scare me a little bit, right? People who inspire me and make me a little uncomfortable and scare me. But if I look back at my career and my lifetime at the biggest leaps that were made, it was always because of a relationship. So spend that time in investing in a network of where you want to be, right? <laughs> and, you know, not where, don't worry about where you should be or you shouldn't be or whatever. Like what's a space that, that, you get excited about and can engage in and are okay in leaning into a little discomfort. Yes, we're right back there, right? Yeah. Right in our discomfort zone. Yes. Yeah. Our toddlers do it so well, right? They um they're super awkward at everything, <laughs> like brushing their teeth. So awkward to watch them do it. Or one of my favorite things as a mom is like watching kids jump or try to jump for the first time. So like they're barely they can barely walk. And jumping is such a physically complex movement. So watching a toddler, that whole like squ squatting down and thinking like, oh, now what do I do next? And then they like pop up. They don't actually like come off the ground. It's such a good reminder for me. Anytime I watch my kids do something for the first time is that like we're all awkward at the first time we do anything and they do it so joyfully. So that's my kind of mantra is just like, okay, like be joyfully awkward. <laughs> Like, like they are, because eventually it doesn't, eventually it becomes less awkward. It does. Yeah. Very nice. Be joyfully awkward. That's a good <laughs> takeaway. <laughs> 
Don't care what others think. Don't care what others say. And the shoulds, right? Push away the shoulds and focus on what you want, where you want to be. And no apologizing. Don't apologize for being awkward or taking up space. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. That's that's awesome to hear. Um, so I think we covered a lot of ground. We talked about when to invest, how to invest, conversations to have. I think the only thing that's left is to tell my audience where they can find you. Oh, nice. Do you mind to share? <laughs> I don't. And I think I could probably even like the when to invest as early as possible and the how to invest. You really only have three options. You do it yourself. You do a robo advisor or you hire an advisor. Like those are your three options. So just pick one and go with it. You can always change your mind. Like we talked about before, <laughs> you can always start in one place and change your mind and move to another place later. You can find me at utorwealth.com. Utor is U-T-O-R, uh, wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H, utorwealth.com. So that will tell you more about me and my services. I have a simple calculator. So if you're curious, like, are you on track to be able to retire at 60 or 70 or 85, whatever the age is, if you're curious about that, you can check out our calculator at simplecalc.utorwealth.com. Very cool. I'll make sure to link to everything in the show notes. And I really enjoyed our chat here. Thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Work-Life Flow. As always, you can find all links and websites mentioned in the show notes. Make sure to get your copy of the four must-have checklists for kids so you can sit back and relax while they are getting ready on their own at castingkirchsteiger.com. That is www.kerstinkirchsteiger.com. And remember, keep being brave and share your story.